This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here again with Josh Rasmussen. Uh, if you've watched the first video, you know that we had technical problems at the end. I lost my internet for the day. And so we had to schedule the second half uh, for another day. Um, today, we're going to talk about um, questions which pertain to uh, God and intelligibility and God and morality. But but we since we got cut off, Josh wanted to... Josh wanted to um, follow up on where we had left off. So, Josh, why don't you go ahead and say what you were going to say? Thank you. Well, we were having such a wonderful conversation. And I was telling my wife, Rachel, it's like we were at this cool point in the conversation and then just blank just ends. That's how it always is, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I was just going to add something to your your list of uh, you're making some points about why having some kind of limitation to life continuing yeah i was um, talking about how i remember now that you 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 had pr- proposed that you know maybe going on forever you know having eternal life or whatever you know um can be seen as add an value. added value right yeah um and i raised some questions about why i thought maybe not i mean i also tend to be i don't know if you ever ever get into these arguments or watch these debates about um human life extension right but Mm -hmm. i'm i'm usually against i usually find myself on the side against much longer lifespans not because you're going to spend a longer time infirm let's stipulate you're not okay yeah um but more because of other things psychological more things so Mm -hmm. one of the things i said is that i'm getting tired of myself i can feel myself starting to get tired of myself Mm -hmm. second of all i feel myself getting more and more distant from the world i live in and I don't know if there were other things I said that you were that had struck you, but that's where I left off. So please. Yeah, right, ahead. right. Good. Yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. just going to add another another factor is there's something about completion points that I think can create meaning, you know, like knowing that there's sort of an end to the episode or an end to a life can create more significance. It can create more meaning inside of that particular episode, that particular life. Actually, just recently read or maybe I should say thumb through this very interesting book called This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. I bet you would enjoy that book. It was highlighting a lot of the things that we were talking about this conversation um, about meaning not having to be tied to an extrinsic story or narrative for it to have that intrinsic value. Yeah. And I think that's right. And then, so, you know, I was making the argument that you could have value in extending the time that value lasts. And I do think that that can be true, but I also wanted to definitely grant that having completion points can also create certain kinds of value that would be missing without those completion points. I think there is value in a life arc coming to a a completion. Yeah. I'm sure I know. I'm sure you've read uh, Lord of the Rings and um, I don't know how much you know about the whole Tolkien, you know, there's a lot of very um, I've read a number of books that approach both Tolkien and obviously Lewis of whom I'm a f- huge fan of the fiction of both. And even Lewis, the nonfiction um, uh, great divorce is one of the best things I've ever read. Um, 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 even though I don't believe in any of it literally, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, it's so, even if you take these all things as metaphors, they're super powerful. Yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm a little bit with John Dominic Crossan in that I don't see why the fact that something is a myth somehow makes it unimportant or insignificant, or, you know, I mean, uh, these are some of the things that really, sort of define civilizations and cultures. Yeah, they point to real psychological themes that we exactly, all experience. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that Tolkien, I don't know if you remember, 
Um, but but immortality is treated as a curse. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the elves specifically say of the human being and you are lucky. Right. Your mortality is a gift. It's not a curse. And and Arwen's wandering the earth forever after Aragorn dies and everybody else dies, you know, is, is sort of a is sort of an indication of like, you know, um, and I think most of the fiction that I've seen, the science fiction I've seen in which there is long or very extended life, like, for example, something like Highlander or something. Right. Mm-hmm. It's never really presented as a great thing. Right. I mean, and, and that's because we have a, we have a we have a mortal human psychology. Right. Mm-hmm. So so I just. You know, I wonder whether a lot of this is really very much informed by your background, right? So, so Judaism doesn't interpret the Garden of Eden story as indicating a fall of man. Mm-hmm. Judaism does not treat death as a punishment. Judaism believes that man was mortal from the start, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm wondering like a- whether it's, it's the Christian treatment of that origin point that sets up this idea that somehow... Uh, immortality and eternity is better than finitude and mortality. But but I would then want to ask, well, why should I prefer that understanding of the of yeah. the of the of the initial stories? I mean, regardless of whether you think they're true or not, but just um, within our different civilizations, so I'm almost wondering whether you're going to be more inclined to see value in this sort of endless infinitude sure. of, of existence simply because you're already coming to the whole t- to the table with this whole raft load of sort of un- ideas about what death is mm. and, and, and all that. Whereas I just don't, right. I mean, I come from a very different tradition that just doesn't view things that way. Uh, there really is no even real um, um, uh, uh, position on the afterlife in Judaism. Um, it's very much grounded and set in the world, uh, in the world we live in and, and, and pushes off eschatology um, mm. So I just wonder what you think about that, whether you think maybe this is just something that we're just going to be different on from our initial starting points. Yeah, no, I, I think that those theological backgrounds certainly make a difference. I was just thinking the last thing I believe that I was saying when we were cut off, so I don't think this was recorded, was that was just that I want to maybe avoid extreme. So on the one hand, I want to acknowledge that there is value that comes from completion points. So if you imagine like an eternal state of like celebrating that's not heaven, right? Like that, <laughs> that, that turns into hell after a while because you're going to get bored, yeah. you know, like yeah. Yeah. as you're just like in this one state of like, I'm happy, you know, it's like you yeah. need some kind of variation, some rest, some completion. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. That's right. And then on the other side, I mean, I, I don't want to say that there's no value that can be had through a series of new episodes. Um, so kind of my, my general eschatology would be something like there's being sequences, sequences of adventures. Um, and so that can look differently, but that these adventures lead to progress and advancement. Um, so basically, souls come into bodies, come out of bodies. And I'm not going to fill in the details about, you know, how this might look, but just in terms of a psychologically possible model that incorporates the value of completion points, um, but then also can recognize the value of the continuation of good things. Yeah. That would be kind of my general thought, but I, I certainly take your point about certain theologies. My wife and I have been talking a lot about this, actually, like certain theologies that uh, we've inherited. If if that's the whole show, like if that theology tells the whole story, it can kind of put a blinder to see other values. And I think that, you know, the, tr- the Jewish tradition that you were mentioning, Rachel and I were specifically talking about that, too. That very model, she showed me a video where a Jew was talking about 
how to interpret Genesis in, in light of that. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm very much, if you can find it, I think it's out of circulation, out of print, but you can probably find it. Um, the, um, the late chief rabbi of the UK, um, J.H. Hertz, was it was a towering figure in uh, in, in terms of Jewish uh, 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 textual understanding and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there is a on Sansino Press, there is a um, Pentateuch and Haftorahs that um, uh, in, includes extensive commentary from him and the commentary, his his comments on the Adam and Eve story in particular are are um, are are. Uh, fascinating and one of the things he says is that um mortality and finitude is a condition for moral agency so we should treat the adam of eve story not as a fall of man but as a rise of man right that's mm-hmm. when we we emerge um unless it is our ambition to remain eternally children um um uh the uh, what the adam of eve story is basically the story of coming to full personhood right it's coming and coming into your full uh, uh being as a as an as a rational actor and as a as therefore a moral actor uh and i find that compelling um um, um and maybe now we'll, we'll want to segue over to morality yeah that sounds great um but you know i started this off with saying that um, there's a number of things that I hear uh, said often about meaning, morality, and intelligibility with yeah. regard to uh, God that I just never have really understood or 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 grasped the 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 the, the reasons for. Mm. One of them is that you need God for your, for life your life to have meaning. Another is that we need God somehow to ground morality that without mm-hmm. and, and, you know again and i don't i don't want to beat up on william lane craig it's just that he's very visible he's got a gazillion sure. videos all over the place and people are more likely to know him than somebody else that that might be more obscure um but he often says as he had a very legendary conversation with shelly kagan at yale i think shelly kagan pretty much completely dismantled him i think i thought craig was way out of his depth um uh in debating him but um Craig very clearly did articulate the view that he doesn't think that there can be any 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 morality uh, without God. And this is just something I fundamentally don't see how that could possibly work. And I, I, I wonder, A, whether you think that and B, what you then would think of why I don't think it works. So why don't I throw it back? Well, to you? I think we're going to have a structurally similar conversation, actually, about this, about morality, as we did about meaning, because. I think first I'm going to agree with you that there's just as there's intrinsic meaning rooted in valuable states of consciousness. I think that there are intrinsically um, positive and intrinsically negative uh, states or actions. I think this does connect back to consciousness and that you don't need some being external to approve of the value of happiness, for example, for happiness to have value or the value of love or relationship. Um, what about, obligation? but, but, but what on about the other obligation? hand, I, what about obligation though? Well, this is tricky. So I want to, I want to bracket that, especially because um, my wife and I have been having long conversations about what obligation is and how to ground it and whether we can eliminate it or we can reduce it to other things like reasons or expectations or whether it's basic. So we, so that, that's a complex topic. I want to come back to that. Um, but just the, on the structural point, I think that my argument for thinking that uh, a foundational mind would be relevant to the question 
is more of a metaphysical um, account about how there can be consciousness in the first place, how there can be specifically the kind of consciousness that senses a distinction between positive states and negative states. That strikes me as sort of fitting with a foundational mind account. But this isn't the kind of conceptual argument that says that what it means, or in order for there to even be any concept, uh, or even, even the existence of good is by definition uh, defined in terms of some kind of external approval. Uh, you know, that that's, I'm going to agree with you that that's not so do you, required. Do you not, do you, are you not on board with this? I, I hear, a, this is probably the thing I hear the most from apologists on this topic is that what they'll say is that it's not that people can't be moral without God, because obviously they can. It's that morality conceptually has no grounds without God. And that the kind of ground that God provides is by him being intrinsically that he that he is intrinsically moral. Right. And so therefore, what issues from him um, um, is what ground his intrinsic uh, morality is what grounds uh, the morality um, in all the in all the commands. And well, what, what grounds what grounds God's intrinsic morality? Uh, they always just say that's just his nature. Right. That that's what they say is they'll say it is, it, he is by nature good, which I don't have. A, I don't even necessarily have a problem with that formally. I do have a problem with it substantively, because once we get out of the abstract and we actually talk about, OK, which specific God are you talking about? Right. I, I don't see the I don't see the I don't see the, the moral nature. <laughs> what I see is like, you know someone who about half the time acts like the worst people we could possibly imagine. Right. Um, and I don't see how we get out of a kind of a two horn dilemma. So either God's morality is sort of in the realm of what we're talking about when we mean morality, and then mm. he's not much use because he's awful. Right. Or when we talk about God's morality, what we mean is something sort of something inscrutable. Right. But then what use is it to ground it? the morality we're trying to ground is the human morality, right? We're not trying to, we're not trying to find out if there's some extra cosmic morality. We're trying, the whole point was to ground human morality, right? So I don't see how you avoid either, either you say, okay, no, 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 it's, it's the normal morality, but then God is like the, you know, the worst person. It's like going to your abusive stepfather for, for, for advice. Um, but then on the other hand, right. If you just say, no, 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 those are all metaphors, all that stuff, you know, it's he's his nature is inscrutable to man, then I don't see how it grounds mor human morality. So are I'll you? Dan, Dan, yeah, no, that, that's great. Are, yeah. are you familiar with Mark Murphy's work on God and morality? No, I would recommend him as as um, he's he's got a good reputation in this area. Now, it's unfortunate I just mentioned him because. I haven't been diligently studying his work, but I do know that he made. Now you can't tell us what it is. Now so I can't really. All I know is he's got a good reputation uh, on this topic, and uh, and that he's he makes some helpful distinctions here um, between. Well, you already kind of pointed to the distinction between value and duties, right? Right, and so if we're talking just about value, and if some things have intrinsic value, so last time we talked about. Do, you know, do persons have a kind of intrinsic value? And by intrinsic, what I actually mean by that is that the value is not grounded in some kind of relation to something else, like somebody approving that you have value or saying you have value. You just mean by intrinsic, not instrumental, right? 
it's not instrumental. It's based on the kind of thing you are, maybe how I would put it. So by being a person, you have so you, value. You would tie it to a kind of essential essentialism. Well, it doesn't have to be essential. So an intrinsic property, it would be a non-relational property, but. Um, you said it was tied question. to its nature. It's nature. It's nature. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you think that it's, yeah. If you think that it's nature is essential to it, then it would be tied to essentialism. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Um, so happiness, relationship, positive relationships have, have value. And so um, I don't think that you need some kind of supreme being that has value in order for persons to have value. Right. I think that's absolutely right. On the other hand, and, and this is where we can make some distinctions here. Um, I do argue that without a fundamental reality that has intrinsic value, that no value would ever arise. So my thought is that you're not going to get intrinsic value purely from throwing together non-valuable clumps of matter, for example. You need, you need the right kind of thing to produce value. Um, so this is a different kind of argument. So it's not a conceptual argument. That, right, but, but you do acknowledge yeah. that for someone like me, for whom values are entirely a property of the effective sensibility, right? I'm not going to need to do what you just described, right? I mean, and in other words, I, I, for me, all I have to do is is point to, uh, you know, is to say that, you know, morality is a property of, of beings to whom things matter, right? Yeah, so then this reduces or translates the question of value into the question of consciousness. And I would say it's not just the general argument from consciousness or the general problem of consciousness, but it's a more specific kind of consciousness. The, the type of consciousness that has positive states or negative states, this value. Yeah, I, you know, but again, there is a naturalistic version of, right, of that, right? I mean, you know, even someone like Bentham is going to say, it's because we're, we have the capacity for for not just for pleasure and pain, but for, you know, reflective conscious, you know, reflective awareness of pleasure and pain. Right. Um, um, and that's going to be a psychological story you're going to tell. Right. About about how it is that certain kinds of creatures evolve with certain kinds of brains and nervous systems that have certain sorts of capacities. I mean, um, I, I'm wondering whether you think. Would you say something similar about the capacity for language? Tell me more about that. The meaning of words. Well, because because there is a kind of a, a level of treatment of semantics, right, which is relatively which is formal, right. And so, what I was wondering is whether you think that any kind of capacity that we have that has a formal underlayer. Now, I have to have invisible super guy for that to make any sense. And what I want to say is <laughs> what I want to say is I don't see why I can't just tell a naturalistic story about that. That's why I always thought that the apologists want to go to this extra move back and say, no, 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 that naturalistic story is not enough because if you go all the way to the bottom of it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you don't have a ground, right? The, you know, um, um, and you need that sort of ground. And so you put the, you put the, the ground past that point past um, is what I thought, right? was the reason for the, the appeal to God, but it doesn't sound to me like for you that that is the reason for it. Well, well, let, let me ask you this. Um, I think part of what makes this complicated is that I was going to tease you, you know, when you think of God, you, you, 
you go to the supernatural guy. I'm thinking like, Abrahamic. I'm thinking yeah, Abrahamic. Yeah. So, so you have a very obviously specific a lot of notion. Different. And that specific notion is, is loaded with all sorts of details that I think aren't going to be relevant to grounding morality. Um, for example, particular descriptions of the Abrahamic God are, are going to be ancillary to whether uh, non-conscious bits of matter could turn into value, valuable things. Right. Um, right. Gotcha. So, yes. so this is going to be my, my question for you is, is, okay, this might seem like a silly example, but it's sort of illustrating the general construction problem. So this is the problem of constructing the kind of realities that have value, that can reflect consciously, that can talk meaningfully. Um, so like, let's, let's take a pile of leaves and imagine they sort of scatter in the wind and they're blowing. Do you think that it would be possible in principle for those leaves to turn into um, a conscious, intrinsically valuable being? We could even add something like if by possible, you mean, if by possible, you mean materially possible. The answer is no. If you mean logically possible, the answer is yes, but it's uninteresting, right? I mean, that's not interesting, right? I mean, anything, almost anything is logically possible, um, but materially possible, no, because everything we know about consciousness thus far suggests that it depends upon a highly advanced nervous system, right? With a certain kind of, with certain kinds of structures, right? Well, I mean, why, why I think that, I mean, th this is something well, I, was I think right. that because yeah, all yeah, the so examples, I, all the examples we have of it are such, that's why all, all the examples that we can detect so this yeah, is but actually... that's how all science is <laughs> well, they, okay, okay, okay how do you know that gravity works maybe over there where you haven't gone yet it doesn't and the answer is well yeah sort of but that's how all of science works and look the bridges don't fall down and you know the the, the rocket ships do go up and all that sort of stuff right i mean i don't know i don't know that i see a problem there right well yeah sure 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 so so yeah. what i'm pointing to here is that you know in, in animal ethics sometimes there's this question about what kind of conscious states can beings who are not humans have. And, you know, one of the things that's difficult is that we can't really get inside of any other being to verify it directly. Right. So we come up with educated guesses. We find certain similarities. We say, okay, well, I guess if I'm feeling a certain way, given certain um, brain states, other beings that have similar brain states and behavior are perhaps feeling yeah, a similar a way. It's a hypothesis. Yeah, yes. so we so we we can form these hypotheses. But one of the difficulties is that if there were something that had consciousness that was very much different from us, then uh, you know that wouldn't be something that we could we could really identify. We can't really get into it to find out one way or the other. So you know, yes, we can think about what's our best explanation of everything that we do know. But I would want to be careful. I mean, in the end, okay. The goal in asking the question is not because I'm actually secretly making an argument that rocks are conscious. I mean, I, I agree that rocks are not conscious, but I think that really getting that clarity as to like why it is that a rock wouldn't feel pain. I don't think it's enough to just say, oh, well, a rock is so different from us because maybe it feels pain. in a different Why isn't way, the rock has no nervous system? A good answer. So I, I actually talked about this precisely in my book, which is that a nervous system is associated with pain, but it doesn't follow from that, that it couldn't realize pain through other functional mechanisms or realize other kinds of consciousness. Yeah, I guess I just don't, 
I guess if you just replace the word consciousness with gravity is what I would say why I don't think that this argument is very persuasive, right? I mean, because it's expecting something from science that you, you that you can't get, right? I mean, science can only be based on that which we are able to experimentally observe, right? Um, and we can't experimentally observe something five galaxies away, right? And so, yes, the theories like about gravity and motion and stuff are based on an assumption, right? That there are constants, right? That, up, that apply. Now that might turn out to be false, but I don't see how that helps the idea that, well, God's going to help that, right? I mean, I, I don't see how, I mean, and maybe that, maybe we'll have to talk about intelligibility and morality together because I don't see how God can be an explanation for anything. If I'm, if I'm being honest, um, well, because so, so- every single ascription to God is, is a metaphor. It's not it's not it's not literal. Right. When you say God did such and such, God's disembodied. He can't do anything. When you say God has various thoughts and states, he doesn't have a brain. How can he have thoughts and states? So what you mean is something metaphorical, the God version of thoughts and states. But that's not an explanation. That's just fantasy fiction. Right. I mean, that's not that's not you know, so I don't even understand these ideas that God somehow is going to help us explain intelligibility. When every ascription we make of God is metaphorical, right? So I just don't get. Yeah, so I, I want to kind of bracket. So yeah. I, my, my mind is trying to organize yeah. different concepts. Yeah. So I want to bracket how God might come in. And I think that's going to depend on our account of like what we mean by God. What kind of a reality is that? Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to bracket that from this sort of interesting question about the limits of science. Because yeah. I thought that what you might say, Dan, is that if something can't be discerned empirically, then we can just kind of leave it open. We can say, well, we just don't know. You know, if, if we don't have evidence about whether fundamental particles could have their own kind of proto-consciousness, right? I mean, some philosophers think they do. Some think they don't. Um, if, if we don't have empirical evidence there, then, then we could leave that open. But see, I, I thought that maybe you would join me in having maybe a stronger conviction that, no, those are just not the kinds of things that could have feelings, um, happiness, sadness. They're the wrong category. I try to avoid modals, right? Um, because they're unverifiable, right? I mean, I mean, that's why I asked you whether you mean materially possible or yeah. logically possible. Um, 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 you know, I'm sure you've read fact fiction and forecast, right? Um, I haven't read that. You haven't read Nelson Goodman fact, fact fiction and forecast about yeah. That's where the, he has the the the, the grew and the oh of course yeah, 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 yeah right yeah. right 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 so yeah. that's the one all about counterfactuals right 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 um and um part of the problem is that they're un you can't ver- it's a, a counterfactual by its nature is unverifiable right so again I would simply say you know when I use when 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 engineers use laws of motion right? yeah I think it would be very odd to say they should just leave it open, right? Because they don't know if five galaxies away, the laws of motion still apply, right? That's just not, I wouldn't think that would be a reasonable uh, I agree reaction. With you. Yeah, right? I think so that there's why does the fact of that, reason so that we, help. Given what we know about physiology, right? What we know is that effective sensibility requires a nervous system, right? Now, now it could be, that four galaxies away, there's something that that has effective sensibility with no nervous system, but that logical possibility shouldn't have any effect on the empirical judgments I make about what consciousness is or what thinking is or what representation is and such like that. 
Okay. I, I think I agree with most of what you're saying in terms of um, these distinctions here. Um, I think that where I would like to explore with you is sort of what it takes to have consciousness in the first place. So, uh, you know, and, and not just consciousness, because it's not just the problem of consciousness. It's the particular kinds of conscious experiences like value, um, personhood, intelligibility, morality. And I think you would agree with me that certain kinds of things like leaves or grains of sand, um, even if they were organized to look like a, a nervous system, that's not going to be enough. Yeah, because the substrate matters. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So, so what kind of substrate? have the right chemistry. There has to be the right chemistry. I mean, look, I mean, I did several uh, dialogues with Massimo Piliucci about this, who's who was a, both a philosopher and an a evolutionary biologist. He, he for 20 years before his philosophy degree, he ran a, a lab at um, uh, University of Tennessee. And, um, you know, he says that, you know, we don't know if you can have mind and other substrates, right? It's mm. logically possible that you might, right? But he says more and more, it's starting to look like there really is something special about carbon because of the way it binds with things and with the flexibility in the way it binds, right? Um, such that even its nearest, one of its nearest counterparts, silicone, seems not to have, right? Um, and that's been the most plausible version of how you might have a different substrate that you might have in mind is, is something that's that's based on an element that's close to carbon on the table. But again, I don't see what all these logical possible speculations about what might have a mind three galaxies away has anything to do with what we should think about mind and consciousness any more than it does what we should think about motion or gravity or anything else. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's my view of it, at least. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. So I've been reading some of the kind of recent science on the nature of matter and how brains work and how they interact with consciousness. And one of the things that's been intriguing to me is that what seems to be emerging is a theory of matter where matter is fundamentally itself uh, based in informational states. It's got a relational quality to it. And it transcends space as we understand it. So the basic nature of matter, it, it's like space sort of emerges out of informational states. And, and so, you know, what kind of a substratum is that, you know, and I guess to be very honest, I mean, I would say that the best science from all that I've read is pointing to the kind of substratum that we're aware of when we're aware of ourselves thinking and feeling, namely the kind of being that you witness yourself to be from a first person perspective, a conscious being. And if, if that's actually the kind of substratum that goes down to the floor of reality, that to me would solve the problem of value and meaning and, and consciousness, because then you have the right kind of substratum. I think there is some, some, a bit, a bit of sort of verbal and conceptual talking past each other in these conversations. One of the things I like to do is kind of slow down the conversation, maybe clarify what's going on because it's very fascinating to me to see philosophers from a kind of naturalistic perspective describing the nature of nature, the nature of matter itself, in terms that I would be very happy with, in terms that I think would help to solve the problems of consciousness and value and meaning. But it's also translatable into my own worldview, which is that fun fundamental reality has the resources of mentation or mind. Uh, that seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, there was an article that came out in Nature 
where the, the um, scientist there was making the, the argument from the latest science that our best account of the fabric of reality, the fundamental building blocks, uh, is in terms of mind. So in a way, because I'm trying to think like, do we disagree? But you're not a panpsychist. I wouldn't describe this in terms of panpsychism because I wouldn't say that the rock has its own consciousness, but rather that the rock is a kind of reality that exists within consciousness. It's right. like when you're having a dream and you have yeah. images, you could have an image of a rock. Yeah. It's the same kind of reality. Yeah. Um, we're, and we're, this fits with our latest science. I mean, that's the thing, because I think there's sort of this unfortunate, almost polarization when it comes down to debates between sort of the cool, calm, naturalist scientists versus the sort of religious supernaturalist who's appealing to speculation and logical possibilities, right? If, if that's, if that's how we uh, characterize the, the conversation, then, well, I'm going to join the naturalist scientist, but then what's actually being said? Like, what is our best science actually revealing to us? And as far as I can tell, our best science is joining with what a lot of philosophers working in the philosophy of mind have been saying about the irreducibility of consciousness and its role in our behaviors. Like even to get evolution to lead down paths of productive creature formation, you've got to have consciousness playing a role in that natural selection process. Yeah. I don't accept that. Um, that, you know, I just don't, I, that's just not something I, I accept. And I suspect, well, Dan, do you so think you're, I suspect the overwhelming thoughts? majority of evolutionary biologists would not agree with that either. Um, um, these, these are atheist philosophers who are making the argument from consciousness and evolution. Well, I mean, what, what, some of them, I mean, look, look, I mean, let's not run off. Right. I mean, um, um, I would want to interrogate every single thing you just said. Sure. I, I think that this kind of playing with the science, especially super theoretical science, is is going to 99% get you in the wrong place because you don't understand it well enough, right? Indeed, the scientists don't understand it well enough. It's too new. I think it'll be 100 years before we really understand what the implications of the super theoretical stuff that's being done now is, just like it was with quantum mechanics and with relativity. So I just think that all of this is just, I wouldn't call it wild speculation, but I'd say it's about five inches away from wild speculation. It's something I'm just not inclined to do or to accept. That's number one. Number two, I would reject the idea that that low a level of description is at all relevant to anything we're talking about. Right. So I'm going to want to go and talk. I'm going to want to go and remind everyone of what Hillary Putnam says in um, um, uh, um, philosophy in our mental life. Right. And that is that, you know, he gives the example of um, trying to explain why a round peg won't go through a square hole. Right. And he says, I could give you a quantum mechanical analysis. Right. But that would be the wrong level of description at which to understand the phenomena. And my general view is, as a general matter, that the relevant levels of description from which to understand a phenomena are at most one or two levels below or sometimes a level above, as in the case of environment and evolution. Right. So um, um, I just I don't think anything that you just described has any relevance at all to the discussion of consciousness because it's way too far down. I don't think that quantum mechanical levels of description are relevant to any understanding of psychology. I just don't. Um, and um, um, I belong what about to that. mental causation? Do you, do you think that your intentions have some effect 
No, I, I, I don't believe that reasons are causes. I, I'm a pre-Davidsonian. I accept that the roughly Wittgensteinian mm-hmm. sort of um, um, Peter Winch sort of view yeah. that um, reasons are that, that the space of reasons is teleological and belongs to the manifest image. So I don't even think that I, 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 I would not want to conflate mental. I would not want to conflate mm-hmm. reasons with brain states or anything like that so that's why you know when we talked about the prolegomena my ex- I, I, my view of inquiry is disunified right i don't i don't think that sure. i think that they're autonomous right yeah um yeah. um and that just is is going to get us all over the weeds which i don't want to do um um because we sure talk yeah about i don't want to take us through these weeds weeds too much here but um, um i would be kind of curious to you know to hear your thoughts about Milliken has an argument from evolution and natural selection um, that leads him to think that mentality has at least some some explanatory role. Uh, you yeah, know, no, I listen. I know, and, and know. listen. I, there, panpsychism is not is no longer just a a, a, whack, a wackadoodle position. I mean, you know, you know, you've got people like Strawson and others. I mean, coming out and saying this, and these are not dumb people, and they're not crazy. So, you know, I accept the fact that you know. <laughs> there's plenty of people who don't agree with me on this. And I also, <laughs> with regard to the second thing you asked, I, I am way in the minority on reasons and causes. I mean, I have, I am, my view is, is eccentric relative to, but in my view, it's, it's those basic, conf, my view, mistakes and conflations that are getting us into these problems that then sure. produce exotic solutions. And I'm allergic to exotic solutions. Um, yeah, um, I, I um, feel that I, I, I see, um, but that's about. personality. I'm not even going to pretend I could justify that. Right. That's just personality. Mm-hmm. I would think, I mean, how could I justify that right? <laughs> I mean, without begging all the questions? Right? Well, maybe it fits with everything else that you're considering. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's always the complexity about these big topics, right. Is, you know, it's almost like there's always a piece in somebody else's view that sort of maybe seems so crazy that uh, we have to say other things that maybe the other person is going to say seems crazy, you yeah. know, yeah. And it's interesting because as you were talking about the complexity of the science and the, the big questions, I was thinking, yeah, that this is why we like need it, need, need everybody, right? We need each other. Well, that's, uh, true. that's true. To cooperate yeah. and to, you know, share each other's insights and see if we can come together in a cooperative project uh, together, you know, because there's data in, in quantum mechanics. That's interesting. It's relevant. Um, it first up too quickly to try problems and it, it doesn't feel like it's problems. Well, then that's going to, be unhelpful but if instead you know we're trying to bring all the pieces together on the table come up with a theory that makes the most sense just coming back to our topic i think this is why one of the things i feel like is very valuable about your work and about this conversation is in distinguishing some kinds of arguments for the role of a foundational mind uh in consciousness from other uh, and morality and meaning from other kinds of arguments that don't seem to me to be compelling. I don't think that these are, that these disputes are winnable, right? So, so I, I always think of myself as what I'm doing is here's a picture. (laughs) It's a disunified. In other words, what I want to say is, look, here's what I'm offering. I'm offering you a a disunified anti-foundationalist version Mm-hmm. of whatever it is we're talking about. I don't believe that I could demonstrate the truth of that version over its counterparts. I don't. So I'm, I'm merely offering something in the hope that people 
will see in it what I see in it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I am not under the illusion that I could prove it to them, which is why I don't really spend a lot of time, you know, fighting people because I don't think this is provable. Like, I mean, how could I prove that, that, that I'm right about the manifest in scientific image, right? All I can do is sort of offer a picture that uses it and see how you find it. Right. And I, I don't yeah. know. I just feel like you present kind of how it, it feels from your perspective. Yeah. I almost feel a little bit like clarify. philosophers have lost the plot. It's like, they see, they think they're doing something other than they're doing. I think that they think that the things they're doing are far more demonstrable than they actually are. And so I don't really understand a lot of the vehemence and the, and the, and the, there's a level, there's a kind of energy that seems to me would only make sense if things were demonstrable. <laughs> um, well, 10 minutes ago in our conversation, I was feeling your energy. I, I felt like you were really passionate. Well, I'm energetic, but I don't think yeah. these things are provable. So when I walk away from this, I'm not going to say to anybody, well, I just beat the crap out of Joshua Rasmussen, right? Because I don't think I've proved anything. I mean, all I've done is try to articulate this picture that has these features that I find that to me uh, make sense and make sense of the thing that we're talking about. But that's really all I can do. I don't know. I, I always feel like in philosophy, really what I'm doing is showing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like Wittgenstein's difference between showing and telling. I mean, I really feel like a lot of things really can only be shown. Maybe this also is because I did so much work in aesthetics. Right. Mm -hmm. But these yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I feel like a lot of what I do is, try to point to things that seem yeah. to me. Yeah. And then I'm not trying to like force anybody else to agree with me. I'm just saying, here's how things look. And maybe in the process of pointing to these things, some people will see things that they hadn't seen before, or maybe they'll, they'll see something different that I haven't seen before. And that's a form of progress. Yeah. You know, and I think just even clarifying the, the concepts, I mean, for example, just going back to the concept of a foundational mind, there are different models of this. Um, you mentioned immaterial mind. Well, what if instead uh, we just go with the hypothesis that there's always some kind of structure that is represented uh, to use uh, Kastrup's vocabulary. There's, a, there's a, an extrinsic appearance of consciousness. So he thinks of matter as an extrinsic appearance of consciousness. And I think that on his model, he's going to say that consciousness is in a certain sense embodied as long as we understand embodihood in terms of mind or mental um, properties. Now you might not like this view. It's not it's not a panpsychist view, but this would be a version of idealism or a version of understanding reality. It doesn't, it doesn't get you God. Terms. It doesn't it doesn't do God. Well, so now then the question is, well, what do we mean by God, right? So if we think of the, a foundational mind as counting as God, if it's supreme then there you go um does it have to be supreme for it to be a foundational mind well not not just by definition right so i mean i, I feel like so, here's a, so, so you you think it just indicates a philosopher's god you don't think it indicates yahweh yeah we could put it that way yeah i mean the only reason why I hesitate is because I'm like thinking of well, indicates you're not a day you're not a deist you're not an aristotelian i mean you're you're a you're a you believe in Yahweh, right? So how do I get to Yahweh from this? I wouldn't argue that you get to a more elaborate description from this. Okay. So then that, that's know. extra stuff. The Yahweh is, the ex, is extra. Right, but who, who does argue that? I mean, like, who, who, who thinks that you need a full, complete description of all the oh, characteristics? A lot of Christian apologists do. 
Maybe so. Maybe there is a certain so th- this is why there's. I'm, I'm not going to represent one side or another. But I'm I, not I at all, feel, and I'm not suggesting you do. I'm just telling you what I've watched. I've heard people say this, and not again obscure people say this all the time, right? I mean, it has to be Yahweh. I've even heard that only Christianity can ground logic, right? I mean, I've 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 seen this argued by Southern Baptist apologists. I've seen this argued by Pentecostals. I've seen this argued. And I just don't, I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. I mean, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, you know, my, I might get the deistic kind of thing that you just described. If I accept this other raft load of stuff about consciousness being fundamental and therefore you don't need a brain and all this sort of thing. I don't accept so, any I'm not of that. You don't need a brain. You, the, the brain is integrated into the consciousness. The very nature of the brain itself is based in consciousness. Whatever that means. I, I don't even understand that, but okay. I mean, yes, I could get all of that. Right. And then I could get maybe to this deistic thing, but I don't see how I get to Yah- anywhere close to Yahweh or Jesus or, or Allah or anybody else that's recognizably an actual God that people believe in, right? I mean, I just don't see how you get anywhere near that. And if you don't get near that, then it strikes me as a lot less interesting, right? It's just sort of like, all right, well, you know, it almost sounds, starts to sound like a stipulation, like an argument from stipulation to me, because... Everything is about what could be and what's possible and logical. And, and I have yet to see any actual evidence, right? I mean, any actual um, repeatable empirical sort of evidence, it's based on very speculative theoretical science that no one really understands yet. That's going to probably take a hundred years. And look, people still, a lot of physicists still say that we really don't understand quantum mechanics, right? So, I mean, I, I just, I'm very hesitant, even though we're not lay people, in this area, we are right, and I'm really hesitant to start flying all over philosophy with this stuff. Sure, yeah. um, when I when I don't really understand it well enough, so I can't even really criticize your position because I don't understand the science well enough. Well, there are different parts of my position. You know, so, like some of my evidence, I would take to be evidence of my own experience with consciousness, as well as I would take myself to be having experiences of forming intentions that form changes in consciousness. Uh, for example, I've done this experiment. I would go with my family to the park and my kids are running around and I would like, just do the experiment again. I like close my eyes. Say, okay. Can I generate visual imagery in my mind, you know, through intending to, right. And it's not necessarily easy. Right. But then, Oh, okay. Here, I'm, I'm going to try to get a chair to form in my mind. Okay. There it's coming up. And it seems like there's a kind of causal relationship between some kind of relationship, some kind of explanatory connection between my experience of my intention and then this chair forming. Now, there are different ways we could explain that, but I would consider this to be among my evidence. So I'm with you. Like, I don't want to just speculate about things that I can't access or can't verify or things that are sort of hidden behind libraries of speculation. But I do think there are things that I can witness directly within my own consciousness. And I think that some of these things that I witnessed actually can give me a lot of information about reality. For example, this is why, Dan, this is why I think there is value in the world. It's not because of peer-reviewed scientific research, because I take myself to be aware of the value of certain conscious states. And this awareness is kind of a direct access to data. And I'm sure we could have some common ground here um, about the kinds of things that we can witness directly, the kinds of evidence. I certainly am not going to suggest that everything we know 
can that, that to know that we can only know as a result of 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 experimental uh evidence but i would not personally on the basis of merely of my self-reflection without a much more substantial understanding of the neurology the neurochemistry and all of that of cognition right i would not presume that anything substantive about psychology or anything else would follow from just my own self-reflections. That's just not something I would be. I mean, there are certain things that I will take my self-reflections as being, you know, a sufficient basis for, Mm -hmm. um, but not, not this. I mean, this is, this is something I would immediately, the first thing I would think is, you know, wow, that's true. It's, that's how it seems to me, but you know, I know enough to know how bloody complicated the neurology of the brain sure. is. And I, I would really want to be, want to hear a lot more yeah. about how all that works before I took anything that ar- arose from just self-reflections uh, uh, to bank on mm. that kind of a subject. Now, other sorts of subjects. No, I don't, I don't need experimental evidence to know about, you know, my love for my wife. I, that, that's something I can find out just through <laughs> self-reflection. Right. Yeah, or even how um, I'm not trivializing it. That's not a small thing, right? I mean, that's it's not. And there's no. a lot of things like that. Yeah. But one of the things that isn't like that, in my opinion, is how the mind actually works, right? I mean, that's not one of those things, right? That's gonna make probably gonna depend on a lot of really complex scientific understanding, none of which I have, um, and um, that I wouldn't want to replace with just sort of self-inspection, I guess. Um, um, yeah, I'm with you. I wouldn't want to replace these things. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because there are things that, as you say, seem to you a certain way. And well, how do you know that, right? I mean, it's not like we uh, need to look at peer-reviewed science to see whether anything seems to you a certain right. way. Uh, there is a literature, though, on the power of introspection, whether it's reliable. And it's sort of an interesting literature because my argument is that, well, if introspection is zero, has no reliability, then you couldn't even be aware of whether you've made observations, scientific observations that undermine the reliability of introspection. I do think there's a kind of self-defeating problem there. But at the same time, I'm totally with you, you know, that uh, if there's peer-reviewed science, that's going to uh, provide additional evidence. So I'm not, I'm not trying to create a contrast here at all. Um, I, I like to get all the treasures on the table. And I think one of the treasures that often gets overlooked or underappreciated in this inquiry about meaning and intelligibility and morality uh, are the treasures that you, I think, can access directly from, from in- inspecting your own consciousness. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely the case. Um, we kind of went out of order, but so we kind of have done intelligibility. So maybe the last thing is say something about obligation. This is a hard one for me because as I said, my wife and I have been having long conversations about what obligation is. Um, if, if you are obligated to keep your promise, what is that obligation? Is it just basic or is it grounded in something else more basic? My working hypothesis right now, Dan, is that obligations are grounded in meanings or not, not meanings, reasons. Um, so re- let me say something more general because I'm actually not so sure it's, it's grounded in something else. So it's not basic. It's grounded in maybe expectations, um, maybe 
maybe um, expectations of things that have positive intrinsic value, something like this, like there's positive intrinsic value in keeping a promise. And so if, if that's right, then I don't need, well, if, if that's right, then my analysis of value will ultimately reduce to my analysis of the more basic states of positive value, if that makes sense. Wait a minute. So, so, so this you is why- value. Did you mean to say obligation? Uh, the, the obligations- Obligations are grounded, grounded in what for you? They're, if, if they're grounded in um, st uh, conscious states that have value. So like- And that's reason, intrinsically valuable. And those, would have in, and those are yeah. intrinsically valuable for you. You got it. And yeah. that requires God because- Well, this just takes us back to the argument that you need the right, right kind of substratum right. to produce this okay. Okay. kind of- Thing. Right. So you don't think that obligation requires Yahweh. I mean, I don't know. I in, other words, not, in other words, what I want to get at is, do you say, are you saying the same thing about obligation that you said about intelligibility or about intelligibility? You said, yeah. I really only need like kind of this kind of like the day is this kind of deistic God. Um, you don't really get to Yahweh from there. You get to Yahweh through other stuff, you know, that I get to Yahweh through. I'm speaking as Joshua. I, I know, I know. Are you saying the same thing about obligation? Yeah, I believe that that's that's right. Yeah, because you don't need the Decalogue. You don't need any of that. You don't need all that stuff that's in uh, Leviticus and Exodus and, and Deuteronomy. You don't need that stuff. That's not the foundation of morality. The foundation of morality is this sort of deistic consciousness value yeah. creating thing. Yeah, so it's helpful. This is this is for the audience. Because um, then I have my beef with you is the same as it was before, but it's not the beef that I expressed in the essay. The beef I expressed in the essay was with the idea that Yahweh grounds mm -hmm. obligation. And that's where I created that two horn dilemma. Well, either his morality is like ours, in which case he's not a very good exemplar or his morality is inscrutable, in which case it's of no use. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um you, you're not going to have that problem because you're not claiming that Yahweh is the basis. Right, right, right. And also, I think it's helpful to distinguish between an epistemic ground of like, you know, how, how would we know what the obligations are versus a metaphysical ground versus a conceptual ground? I think it's really helpful to make those distinctions. So in my view, um, yeah, we don't need Yahweh. We don't need God to know, okay, that there's something positive about loving. No, of course my, not, but it's not meant yeah, because in, in my view, we, we, we can know this by direct acquaintance. Yes. actually the same yes. way we can know that we're conscious. Right. Right. But you might need some, the right kind of foundation for there to be knowledge in the first place. So in that sense, see, this is why we have to make these distinctions because in that sense, I might say, well, we do need some sort of the right substratum, the right kind of materials. Um, and I think that it would have to have mental powers for there to be knowledge you know, but it's not that you have to read it in a text, right? And that's where we agree is that I don't think you have to read in a text and come to first believe, oh, this text was inspired by God. And this text says that we should be kind to each other. Oh, now I know we should be kind to each other. Yeah. And if this text said that we should kill each other and eat each other, oh, well, then we're just our minds are a slave to the text. So now we should kill and eat each other. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> then that does, I think, fall right into your dilemma there. Which I think is a helpful dilemma. Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't have anything additional to add as a complaint against the deistic grounding. I mean, I understand the I understand the proposal. Yeah. Um, I, as you know, I, at least view myself. We had a we had a 
we had a conversation about this, which was funny, not funny in a bad way, funny in a good way, but where you kept saying, aren't you a foundationalist? I'm like, no, I'm not a foundationalist. Um, but I at least view myself as anti-foundationalist. Um, mm. And so I don't really feel the need for these groundings. I'm very happy with the kind of Rossian notion that, you know, our feelings of obligation arise directly out of our relationships. Mm. They're all prima facie. And what your actual obligation is can only be determined through just, you know, a judgment call. <laughs> And you may decide later on that you made a mistake. I mean, it's fallible. Um, um, and this um, is your epistemic explanation. Like it can be determined by a judgment call, meaning this is your way of sort of seeing. No, that's also my metaphysical explanation. Metaphysical. In other words, I think I think right. that, you know, uh, amongst prima facie duties, which is your actual duty is, is indeterminate, right? Um, um, it's a matter of, it's a matter of the particular circumstances, the particular actors, the particular sure. outcomes and consequences and your judgment as to which is the most pressing and which is the most valuable. And all of those things are things you may change your mind about later or mm -hmm. decide otherwise, or, you know, in other words, I just think, I just think it's fallible all the way down. I don't think, you know, and, and, and I'm happy with that. I mean, and to me, it makes enough sense of what we do that I don't feel the need for anything deeper. Um, 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 but then again, I am aware that people do think that we need groundings. Um, mm. And um, I used to think that when I was younger um, and I don't know how much of my views now are a feature of just being older and finding less and less that less and less of what I thought was solid and sure. Yeah. I was much more ideological, much more principled, much more convinced mm -hmm. when I was younger. And my process of getting older has been a process of unraveling of that. Yeah. And I don't know. I couldn't tell you where that that part ends and the actual philosophy starts. You know what I mean? They're mm -hmm. all kind of jumbled in together. I'm not also saying that this is a necessary consequence of age because obviously people much older than me. Mm -hmm. still think the other way but in my my experience this is what's happened with me is i've just gotten less and less certain less and less needing of certainty yeah that's the most important thing is i've just mm -hmm. felt it less and less important that i be sure that things be solid i've gotten used to and and grown to accept the shifting sands right mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you have any thoughts about that but that's really all that i got yeah. Yeah. Well, I can, I can relate to that. You know, I feel like as I study topics, new rooms would open up and there'd be more complexity and certain things that seemed clear become unclear, lost in the, the weeds of complexity. Although maybe other things would seem more clear to me. Um, certain things about consciousness maybe now seem more clear to me than they did before through inspection. But then at the same time, I think when I was younger, I was looking for what we may call like a third person proof that like would appeal to every mind, you know? And I think that I've let go of that. You've given up on that. <laughs> yeah. I think that That's I not appreciate that people just have different perspectives. No matter how nice um, you are, that ain't going to happen. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, really in any field, because I mean, you might think, well, in mathematics, we have these proofs, but then you've got these fictionalists saying, oh, well, the mathematical statements are technically and then false later, for various the proofs, reasons. People find things wrong with them 50 years later or a hundred <laughs> years later, or, you know, the whole they debate just starting points. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I think that I've, I've definitely, I can definitely relate to that. Um, what well, you're one describing. One thing I would like to see you do is um, 
you could take it as a personal request um, as someone who's a fan of your, of your work, um, of your, of your public work. Um, I've seen you debate a lot of atheists and so- secular. I would like you to see you debate someone to your proverbial right. Right. In other words, I'd like to see you a go political on debate. No, 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 no. On the stuff we're talking about. Right. Oh, in, other oh, words, okay. Okay. in other words, you are a Christian hmm. you teach at a Christian university. You do apologetic I style see. content. Okay. Mm-hmm. But relative to the spectrum of the people that do that, you're pretty much on the proverbial left, meaning that you're not at all convinced that you have to have Yahweh as a ground for intelligibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Cy Ten Prugencat does think so, right? William and Clay Craig does think so, right? And I'd love to see you debate them instead of the atheists because I think that's more interesting territory, right? Um, um, but I don't know if that's even acceptable or whether you're going to get shunned in your community or, or. Well, I've got lots of communities, you know. I mean, I was actually just thinking I've had some interesting conversations on, on uh, universal reconciliation. I don't know if, if you've seen some of my thinking about that. And, um, I bet and, you there's still more I haven't watched. I've tried to watch a lot of your stuff, but you've got a lot of stuff. Sure, so sure. I mean, yeah. So, so uh, I, I received that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to, to debate anybody about anything. Right. So, <laughs> but I mean, um, is this an active yeah. conversation going on amongst within the apologetics community? It's like, because it looks to me like most of them are saying Yahweh, not just God in the more philosophical sense. I don't know, Dan, I, 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 th- there are distinctions that just sometimes get lost. Mm. Um, and that I, I think that if there was a, a friendly conversation with you on this, some of those distinctions with the very apologists that you have in mind would come out onto the table and, and, you know, may, maybe some of your objections would stick and maybe some of them would be transformed into a different path, but I'm not really sure. I mean, it's, I think it's dangerous for me to kind of represent others. It's too large of a, it's too large of a group of people, it, it, too many different people. Right. Um, but, but I mean, you know, I, I tease about debating anybody at, about anything, you know, but I, I like conversations. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like mean debating. I didn't mean it literally. I meant more conversation. And I, yeah, I would be, I would love to do that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that I I'm happy to do. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, sure. it, it's not territory you see very much explore. At least I haven't. It's mm. always atheist versus I'd also, like I said to you prior to the last conversation, I'd love to see more between uh, Christian apologists and Jews. Um, because I think there's a lot of interesting territory there um, um, to explore that kind of just gets all lumped together. Um, 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 but anyway, this was a, really a lot of fun. It's terrific. Um, yeah, and I you. hope that we can do more in the future. And um, thank you so much. Do you want to plug anything? Do you have anything coming up? Books, articles? Are you doing any engagements you'd like to promote? I would say my main project now is just this book on consciousness. I have a draft done and now I'm working on editing it and updating it. And it's, it's kind of like the universe is giving me sources on consciousness. So I get another book. Okay. I should read that, you know, and then I modify a section. Um, That's kind of the main thing, you know, that I would just point to is just this project that should be coming out maybe next summer. Do you have a publisher or you're going to have to shop it? I do. It's the same publisher as how reason can lead to God. And I like them because they're very good at really giving a, a good review of the material before it goes to print. So, yeah. And you said about a year, you think? I think maybe about a year. Yeah. We'll okay. see. Well, Joshua, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Really this is wonderful. It, thank man. you, Dan. Thank you.